We open again to Acts chapter 3, verses 17 to 26. And this being our third time, I'll go ahead and read it one more time so we can keep the whole context in mind. We'll go through and exposit this great text. Acts, the book of Acts in the New Testament, chapter 3, verses 17 to 26. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you, first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. There is a long-standing and widespread belief that the church of Jesus Christ has replaced the nation of Israel and that Israel, as a nation, no longer has a future in God's program due to their unbelief and their rejection of Christ. The promises that were given to the nation of Israel, this belief holds, have been now transferred and changed to the church of Jesus. This belief has been labeled replacement theology, or many call it supersessionism. It's hard to say. I've got to say it a few times today. Supersessionism. For many of us, it's perplexing how this belief has lasted so long because the Bible makes it repeatedly clear that God will never revoke His promises or change His promises to His nation. Dr. Vlock, in his really good book on this issue, Has the Church Replaced Israel? That's the title, Has the Church Replaced Israel? It's a great read, and I'm going to quote him at length because he writes at length about the problems with replacement theology or supersessionism. What does supersessionism need to prove to be considered a biblical doctrine, he asks. First, supersessionism needs to explain how God can make multiple eternal and unconditional promises and covenants to the nation Israel and then not fulfill these promises with this specific group. If God is true and does not lie, how can He promise the nation Israel certain things and then not complete the fulfillment with the group to whom the promises were made? It will not be enough to claim that the church is the new or true Israel. What also must be addressed is how God can promise certain blessings to a certain people without the fulfillment of these promises involving those same people. It's a great question, and that's what they would have to prove. Second, stay with this because I think this is really good. It, that is supersessionism, must be shown that the church is now considered the new or true Israel. 
There must be proof that the titles of Israel and the title of Jew have now been transcended or broadened to include believing Gentiles. Third, supersessionists need to show that the church inherits national Israel's covenants and promises in such a way that we should not expect a future fulfillment of these with the nation Israel. Supersessionists need to show positively the church is the complete fulfillment of Israel. Now that's a tall order, but that's what they have to prove. He goes on, supersessionism does not satisfy any of these requirements and therefore it is not a biblical doctrine. And I agree with him. There are compelling scriptural reasons, he goes on, in both testaments to believe in a future salvation and restoration of the nation Israel. Most of the arguments supersessionists offer for holding that the church is the complete replacement or fulfillment of Israel are based on implications they believe are true, but in reality are not biblically accurate or logically consistent. And he gives some examples. For example, he writes, supersessionists claim that the unity between Jews and Gentiles in the church expressed in passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 means that there can be no functional role for national Israel in the future. But this simply is not the case, since spiritual unity does not necessarily cancel ethnic and functional distinctions between groups. Or, continuing his quote, supersessionists argue that the application of Israel language to the church in passages like 1 Peter 2.9 and 10, Romans 9.24-26, means that the church is now the new Israel. But the Old Testament predicted the day would come when Gentiles would assume the language used to describe Israel, but not in the sense of assuming Israel's identity. See, for example, Isaiah chapter 19, verses 24 and 25. Or, another example, supersessionists claim that since Jesus is the fulfillment of the seed of Abraham, see Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, then the promises to the believing ethnic seed of Abraham through Jacob are no longer in effect. But the concept of the seed of Abraham is not an either-or concept, he writes. There are multiple senses of the seed of Abraham given in Scripture with no one sense canceling out the meaning of another. Hang in there a little longer because this is important. Also, supersessionists, in rightly claiming that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, mistakenly assume that the details of Old Testament prophecies are absorbed into Christ in some Platonic sense that makes specifics of these prophecies no longer relevant. In actuality, though, the New Testament often affirms Old Testament expectations concerning the nation Israel the temple, the nation, the coming of a personal antichrist, the day of the Lord, and other things. Supersessionists, therefore, find themselves in the difficult situation of having to prove that explicit predictions of Israel's restoration do not mean what they meant when those projections were first written. In other words, how would they have understood it when it was written? That's the correct interpretation. There's more. He warns this. The supersessionist position is tampering with the strongest biblical evidence possible 
multiple explicit declarations in both testaments that the nation of Israel will be saved and restored. It's quite a strong statement. He concludes with this. Supersessionists have made a foundational error concerning God's intended purpose for Israel. Contrary to the supersessionist position, it is not God's intention for everyone who believes to become part of Israel. Through Abraham, the nation Israel was created as a vehicle to bring blessings to all the families of the earth, Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. But it has never been God's intent to make everyone who believes Israel. Israel, through the ultimate Israelite, Jesus Christ, is the means of worldwide blessings, but Israel is not an end in itself, close quote. Now that extended quote serves to remind all of us that we must build our beliefs, our theology on explicit statements in Scripture, not implications from something else that we believe. When the Word of God is explicit about a doctrine, it is the responsibility of every believer to accept that doctrine. And so that's why we're taking time with this issue that may not seem as personal to you in the pew here. Well, we don't really have pews here, but your seats. But it does relate to your understanding of how God has worked through the ages and how you approach Scripture and particularly prophecy and what to expect in the future. And that's why we're learning five truths to understand the nation of Israel. We've already kind of covered three and a half of them. I'm going to give this to you quickly as a review. Um, they're... Um, They're stated in uh, verses 17, 18, and 19, the first three. The first truth is that Israel acted ignorantly in killing Jesus. That's verse 17. The second truth was that God planned for Israel's Messiah to suffer and die. He took a bad thing and He brought a lot of good out of it. That's verse 18. The third truth about the nation of Israel is that God requires that nation to repent. That's not going to change. They're not going to get any of their blessings, any of their kingdom until they repent and return, notice. Not just a change of a mind, but a change completely of their life so that's brought in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's essential. In fact, Peter is standing and acting like a prophet speaking to the nation of Israel in a long line of prophets who have always been calling the people of God back to their God. In fact, God sought repentance from Israel in every single generation, and God seeks the repentance of the nation of Israel today. Does Israel's lack of current repentance mean that God has rejected the nation? It can mean God has rejected individual Jews or generations of Jews, but does it mean He's rejected the nation? The answer the Bible explicitly gives is not at all, or may it never be. And that led us to the fourth truth. And that is, and we started this last time, when Israel repents, God will fulfill His promises to the nation and frankly to the world. When Israel repents, this is the fourth truth, God will fulfill His promises to the nation. And look at the second part of verse 19, if you would. We pick up there. So that, you need to repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He, God, may send Jesus, notice, the Christ appointed for you. The you is the Jews, the nation. Verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. 
This portion of Peter's sermon to the Israelites, who are still unbelieving, speaks of a glorious future for the nation of Israel. He wants those that are in front of him to participate in what God has promised he will do. They might miss out. The nation won't. The nation will get what God has said they're going to get. That generation better decide whether they're going to participate in those promises or not. And that depends on their repentance and their returning to the Lord. And we said last time that Peter mentions a threefold positive result of Israel's repentance. First, their sins will be wiped away. We talked about how that's a strong term. It means to be utterly blotted out. Why? Because God is so gracious, because God is so patient, because God is always faithful to His promises. That's why we love Him, and that's why we worship Him. Amen? And He's just like that. He's not just like that with us. He's like that with everybody. The second wonderful thing that would happen is times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. We noted last time that the term times, chronos, is plural. What does that mean? That means he's not talking about a little brief period of time. He's talking about a succession of times. This would include the millennium and into the eternal state as Revelation chapter 20, 21, and 22 articulates. By the way, the term times is the same word that Jesus used back in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, for the restoring of the kingdom to Israel. He referred to it specifically with this word, times. He said, it's not for you to know the times and the epics, and he's referring to the restoration of Israel. He was agreeing with them that there would be a restoration. It just wasn't for us to know the times when that would happen. So Peter is referring to the time during the millennial kingdom and beyond. And we took time last time to go to that great chapter, Romans 11, which is really the bullseye for dealing with all of this, that Israel has a refreshing future. And we read the climax there in Romans 11. A partial hardening has appeared, uh, uh, happened to the nation of Israel. And then the word until is given, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. He's hardened and blinded them until the nations that he has decided come into salvation. And then it says... All Israel will be saved. That means Israel in mass as a nation will be saved, unlike today where there's only some that are repenting. Paul also wrote in that great chapter, Romans 11, from the standpoint of the gospel, the Jews are enemies. That's true. They oppose the gospel everywhere we go. Those individual Jews are not God's friends. Don't don't misunderstand that. We don't have to be friends with the nation of Israel in their unbelieving state. From the standpoint of the gospel, the Jews are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, the Jews are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And the reason for this is the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He also writes in that chapter, if Israel's transgression, that's referring to the rejection of Christ, be riches for the rest of the world, and Israel's failure be riches for the Gentiles, How much more, an argument from lesser to greater, how much more will Israel's fulfillment be? There's going to be a fulfillment for the nation of Israel. In other words, if if we got the gospel and millions of people being saved and brought into the kingdom of God when Israel hated and rejected their Messiah, how much greater will it be when the nation in mass believes in Jesus as their Messiah? It's very exciting. And that's kind of where we left off with that lovely and exciting thought. Just think about when that happens. 
You go to Israel, you look around, maybe it'll be this generation. Maybe some of those young people carrying around those rifles everywhere in their nation that they're doing now. Maybe it's some of those young people that will be part of this mass conversion. Who knows? We don't know the time. And I'm not going to be a date predictor either. But when Israel repents, this world, all the nations of the world, are going to get what they want now, what they strive for and can never get. They can't get peace. They can't get paradise. They can't get rid of disease. All their technology is never going to achieve it for them. But when Israel repents, watch, because that's when the world's going to get paradise. Now, a side note. Israel will never themselves get peace. They'll never get refreshment, as Peter says, until they repent, right? When we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying for the repentance of the nation. Did you know that? Because they're never, never going to get peace until they repent. And that's been borne out in history. What has the last 1,900 years brought for the nation of Israel as an unbelieving people? They're the most troubled and harassed people on the planet. Their borders were raided when they were in the land. They were deported and scattered among the nations. Rome came twice and destroyed them as a nation. They were hard to put down. Not just the Holocaust, but persecution in many locations throughout Europe, throughout Asia. They've been persecuted all over the place. Jews are frequently hated worldwide. Now they're back in their own land. They still have no peace. All their neighbors hate them. The United Nations has an ugly bias against the nation of Israel. Terrorism against their country is often tolerated, and no one says anything where terrorism happens in other countries. People say it's terrible. So they don't get any refreshment now. They don't have their restoration yet. That only comes with repentance and when Jesus returns. And that's the third consequence. Look at it. The third consequence for Israel's repentance is God will send Jesus. When they are at their worst place, when they're backed into a corner during the time of the tribulation and, and the armies that have come against Israel and they're actually pushed into the wilderness and I think two-thirds of their population has been destroyed as the prophecies say, at the point in time where they're most desperate, their pride will be shattered, they'll finally cry out and acknowledge Jesus is the Messiah at that moment, God will send Jesus Christ, rise off your throne and go, you are appointed for that nation and he will go and he will be, come and arrive as the king of the Jews. Peter, please notice, is not speaking and preaching to the church here. He is speaking to an unbelieving nation. That's the context of this. You've got to get that. Yet Jesus was appointed for them, he says. He's appointed for you. He can't mean the unbelievers. He has to mean the nation. He's appointed for the nation. Jesus is the appointed king of the Jews. When he comes, he comes back as Yeshua with that Hebrew name. And he comes back to be and to rule over the king of Israel, over, the, over Israel. You know, the early church always held an opinion that Jesus Christ could return to earth at any time in their own lifetime. He's actually, Peter's actually holding out that possibility here for the Jews. If you would repent, God will send Jesus. There it is. What's, what's delaying it? Peter didn't know there was going to be 1,900 more years of church history or whatever. He didn't know that. He's like, if you repent, then God will send them. He didn't know the times. He wasn't allowed to know the times. He was a prophet, and he knew a lot. He was an apostle, and he, he had heard from Jesus. He didn't know the times. It was not for him to know the times, but he was holding out the promise right here. Jesus will return to Israel. Did you know that? When he returns to this planet, were you told Jesus will return to the nation of Israel? Why? Because God appointed Jesus as the king of Israel. That's why. 
He is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed king. That's what it means. He's the king of the Jews. That should be taken literally. That title was inscribed in a mocking fashion above Christ's head on the cross. Remember in John 19, 19, the king of the Jews, and, and the Jews hated that. They said, don't say king of the Jews. Say that he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I wrote, I wrote. And he had fun with that. He stuck it at him. Pilate even asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him and said, it is as you say. That's yes. When the Magi visited the Christ child from the east in Matthew 2.2, they asked, where is he who has been born what? Do you remember? King of the Jews. They were looking for a literal king. It only makes sense that Jesus, the king of the Jews, will come again to the nation where he is king. You would think that fact alone, that Jesus is coming back to the nation of Israel, that that fact alone would persuade people to understand that God has a future for the nation of Israel. Romans eleven twenty six 26 even says Jesus is Israel's deliverer. In referring to himself in the parable in Luke 19, 12, Jesus said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. He was talking about himself. In those days, someone would have to go to Rome, and Rome, the emperor would grant a king in a certain amount of land, and then he would come back to Israel, and he would be able to fight and take the land that he wanted because he had permission from the emperor. It's like Jesus has gone, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and the Father has granted him that kingdom, and he's going to come back, and when he returns, he's going to slay his enemies, and he's going to rule over them. That's what that parable means. At, at his return, Jesus will take control of his kingdom. He is coming, and he is coming back to Israel. His second coming is to a tiny little piece of land on our planet. That's where he's returning. It's the nation Israel. Jesus said to Jerusalem in, in uh, Luke 13, 35, You will not see me, Jerusalem, until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're going to say that to him. Jerusalem is going to say that to them. That's the Jews. There's going to be a passage of time. But the Jews are going to see Jesus again when they confess him. Jesus guaranteed it. Peter says here, heaven must receive Jesus until that time. That speaks of some divine necessity, right? When you see, you see that must there, you realize that's part of the way God has planned things. It's required. God has a plan, and it must happen this way. If we don't know why, it doesn't matter. It must happen this way. We're told that oftentimes in Scripture, and we just have to submit to that. Jesus is going to come back after that time where he must be received. When he returns, it will be the time of the restoration of all things. The restoration of all things. In other words, all things are moving on a divine clock. There's going to come a time where all things are restored. Again, that's very similar to what happened uh, in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where the disciples said, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he admitted that the kingdom was going to be restored to Israel. He only told them it's not for you to know those times. In fact, precisely because Jesus responded by using those terms, the times and the epics, referring to this time on earth and referring to it being down on earth, Jesus was affirming that the kingdom for Israel was still coming. In none of Jesus' teachings, either before his crucifixion or after his resurrection, during those 40 days when he was on the planet, did Jesus teach his Jewish apostles that Israel would not get precisely the kingdom that the Old Testament prophets said they would get. That is why Peter, now with Jesus ascended, is still preaching to the Jews the coming of an earthly kingdom. 
Some people object to the whole idea of an earthly kingdom. They point to Jesus' testimony to Pontius Pilate in John 19 where he said, My kingdom is not of this world. But that was not a denial of an earthly kingdom. Jesus was simply pointing out to Pilate that Pilate had nothing to fear about the rise of his kingdom. That's where Pilate's mind would have been as a Roman governor. It would not arise as a kingdom of this world. There's not going to be a little skirmish and a battle like you're worried about with the Jews. It's not going to arise out of the world like Rome or Greece or Egypt. It's not of this realm. It's from above. Being a kingdom not of this world does not mean it's a kingdom that will never be in this world. They're reading too much into that verse. The point is that the kingdom of heaven comes down from earth. It's God's kingdom that comes down to earth. Isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ told his disciples to pray for in the Lord's Prayer, right? Pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Pray, the kingdom will come down to earth. That's the point. Pray the kingdom down. Pray for that. When you pray, Maranatha, come Lord, you're praying the kingdom of God will come down to earth. It was meant to be on earth. The kingdom of heaven means the, the kingdom that originates from the authority of heaven. It means the kingdom of God. It's another way of saying the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean it's located in heaven. It's to come to earth, you see. Others point to a statement Jesus made to the Jews in Matthew 21, 43, where he said, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. That does not mean taken away from the entire nation permanently. But as the context indicates, taken away from that perverted and unbelieving generation of Jews who saw all of those signs and refused to repent, and they lost their chance to be in the kingdom. It was taken away from them. He said elsewhere, many Gentiles will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they'll come and they'll recline in the kingdom with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But those unbelieving Jews they forfeited the kingdom for themselves. Others point to Jesus constantly speaking of the spiritual qualifications of the kingdom of God and how to enter the kingdom of God with spiritual qualifications. And rather than Jesus talking about the physical dimensions and the physical blessings of the kingdom, and they say, see, Jesus' concept of the kingdom was not earthly, not political, but it was spiritual and it was heavenly. That's a logical fallacy. Speaking of the spiritual qualities of the kingdom does not negate the future physical blessings the Old Testament prophets outlined in great detail. Insisting on the spiritual requirements for entrance into the kingdom and emphasizing the spiritual and righteous requirements of the kingdom in his teaching is the same thing that the Old Testament prophets themselves did when they talked about a future glorious physical kingdom, but then said, here are the spiritual requirements, and called them to be circumcised of heart and to repent of their sin. It's the very thing the Old Testament prophets did. Jesus emphasized the spiritual requirements for entering into the kingdom. He told Nicodemus of the new birth. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's right, because Israel was never promised the physical blessings without first meeting the spiritual requirements. Listen, we don't say because God is talking a lot now about saving our souls from hell and forgiving our sins and redeeming our souls that that means there's never going to be a physical resurrection of our bodies in the future, does it? 
Does the fact that we emphasize you need to be saved from your sins now mean don't look forward at all to a physical bodily resurrection? No, it doesn't mean that. It's a logical fallacy. So also with the kingdom, Israel must meet the spiritual qualifications of Christ's kingdom. The righteous requirements Jesus talked about and Peter is talking about, the ones Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, enter by the narrow gate, all of that. That is the requirement they must meet before the kingdom is given to them. And that's why Jesus emphasized it. Actually, few Bible readers take time to notice that when Jesus spoke of the location of the kingdom of God, he spoke of it as on earth, not in heaven. Remember what I just quoted to you. They will come from the east and the west and the north and the south. Does that sound like heaven to you? That's earth language. Matthew 19, 28. Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, that means the restoration of the kingdom, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also will sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's earth language. Likewise, in Matthew 17, 11, uh, this is right after the transfiguration, and the disciples have question about Elijah. Is Elijah coming? And Jesus said, Elijah is coming and will, future tense, restore, same word, restore all things. Elijah's still coming to Israel. That was spoken after the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came with the spirit and the power of Elijah, but John the Baptist was not Elijah. Jesus said, Elijah's still coming. Coming where? To earth. It's earth language. Coming to Jerusalem. And the rest of Scripture bears this out. You go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 5, 9 and 10. It says, as they're singing a song to, to Christ, they say, You were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Epige, meaning upon the the planet, upon the earth. This is not a heavenly kingdom. That will be a fantastic time. The restoration and the refreshment and the rejuvenation of all things. There will be radical changes to the planet. Nature will be redone. There will be harmony among the animals, so say the prophets. Abundance of provision in the, in the plant world. Righteousness from sea to sea, peace across the whole planet, no war at all, no crime, no disease, no death, not brought by technology, not brought by the ingenuity of man, not brought by education, brought by Jesus Christ. Knowledge of the Lord will be everywhere. We will not say know the Lord because everyone will know the Lord. But it's preceded by that tremendous seven years, a time of cataclysmic changes, as Joel 2.30, just in brief, says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon and the blood before the great and the awesome day of the Lord comes. In Revelation 16, it says, the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it. And so mighty, the great city, that's Jerusalem, was split into three parts. 
and the cities of the nations fell. That's all it says. I'm thinking of New York, and I'm thinking of Los Angeles, and Chicago, and Houston, and Shanghai. It just says the cities of the nations fell. They all just crumbled. That's how great this earthquake is. Can't even imagine it. It says Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away. What does that mean? The waves just buried them. And the mountains were not found. It has nothing to do with global warming. That's the wrath of the Lamb from the right hand of God. In Romans 8, it says creation is, is longing to be set free from the corruption that it's in now into the glory of the children of God. You know, the, the world was cursed because the king of the planet, Adam, sinned against God. And now when we get a new king, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and he is on the planet, everything will be made right again because creation was made for man. It was made for his provision, that is. The writer to Hebrews in Hebrews 2.8 says, We do not yet see all things subjected to Jesus. All things are because he's at the right hand of the Father and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. He said that, but we don't see it yet. They're not physically obeying him. But they will then. They'll all get down low before King Jesus. Can you imagine it? True enough, the church is doing now what Israel should have been doing. We concede that. The church is functioning as a spiritual nation, so says 1 Peter 2. The church is witnessing the light that Israel should have been shining to the world. In that functional sense, and in that sense only, the church has temporarily replaced the role of Israel in witnessing of Christ to the world. The church is the remnant of believers in the world today. The church is the apple of God's eye. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is beloved of God. By no means are we minimizing what God's plan is for the church. But Israel will be grafted back into the promise as Romans 11 states. Ultimately, there is and can only be one people of God. Why is that? Because it all is summed up in the person of who? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? All things are summed up in Christ. Presently, however, God is managing two different programs with two different entities, the church and Israel, and these two will come together and converge in the millennial kingdom under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the life that He gives. In that 1,000-year reign of the Messiah, there will be many, many nations. I don't know how many. And all of the nations, Israel included, will be filled with believers in Jesus Christ who are one with Christ. And they will all then be one with another. In the kingdom, there will be believing Jews. And there will be believing Egyptians. And there will be believing Syrians and Lebanese and Brazilians, and yes, there will be believing Americans in the millennium. There'll be believing Russians, yes, there will. There'll be believing Nigerians and Chinese, and you can go on and name the other countries. And Jesus will rule over all of them from the throne of David, where David sat in Jerusalem. And the Word of God is very clear about that. And that leads us to the fifth truth. I've got to make sure I've got time for it. We really need a clock in here. Fifth truth. This is the last one. I'll go quickly through this. Israel is privileged above all nations. Israel, the nation of Israel, is privileged above all nations. That's in the middle of verse 21 to the end of the passage, and we'll just survey this. The prophets announced this 
Notice verse 21, it says, about which God by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. This was all announced. God spoke of Jesus and his coming kingdom and Israel's prominence among the other nations and over the other nations. They were promised this. The prophets talked about it. And here Peter is, is witnessing to the Jews and he knows if, he, if he's going to really get these Jews to understand and believe, as you'll see a lot of them did, he's got to refer, how does this fit in with what Moses said? How does this go back to Abraham? And so he brings these two great luminaries from the Old Testament, the two that the Jews trusted in the most along with David, Moses, Abraham, and David's kind of hinted at here, and he brings them all into his argument so the Jews will understand everything I'm telling you about Jesus has been talked about in your nation's history from your own prophets. It's come out of their very mouths. It was written down. You should have known this. And he goes to Moses first. Notice in verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he has to say to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Do you hear the warning Peter is giving to them? Moses said, there's going to be a prophet that's going to be raised up. He's going to be like me. Moses said, you better obey everything that prophet says to you or you will be utterly destroyed. Every single Jewish person who does not heed that prophet will have utter destruction. Very strong statement there. Indeed, when Jesus was preaching to the Jews, he said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. They say, why don't the Jews believe in Jesus? They should. Moses wrote about Jesus. In other words, they're saying if you had really believed the Old Testament, you'd believe the New Testament. Because it all is about Christ. And notice Christ is called a prophet here, but not just any prophet, the prophet, the one final prophet, the prophet who speaks for God, the prophet who reveals God perfectly, the prophet who is so revealing of God that after this prophet, there's nothing else to say about God. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. No prophet, no ordinary prophet could say that. John said, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten one who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained, exegeted, exposited the invisible God for us so we could know him. When Jesus arrived, he's born in Bethlehem. He arose among the brethren there in Israel. He was raised in Nazareth. He descended from David. He was of the tribe of Judah. He was one of the brethren. When that prophet arose, when Jesus arose, they were to listen to and obey him because there was not going to be another prophet after him. He was the final statement. When someone comes along and tells you about God perfectly, you don't wait for another prophet to arrive. When someone comes along like Muhammad and says, I'm the last prophet, he's a liar. And don't listen to him. Your soul will be crushed if you listen to a false prophet. And so they had to listen to him. None of the promises for the nation of Israel would work for any unbelieving Jew or for any unbelieving Gentile today either. And Peter continues the connection to the Old Testament, verse 24. Likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. Now, Samuel did not directly prophesy about the Messiah, but Samuel was connected to David's life, and Samuel anointed David, and God spoke to David, and the dynasty, the Davidic dynasty, came from David's loins. And his dynasty was promised that his son, his greater son, somewhere down in his line, would sit on his throne. And David knew that the son was so much greater than him, he called his own son in Psalm 110, Lord. 
When he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my feet. David was promised a greater son, and they looked forward to the days and the arrival of the Messiah. And so David is brought in. Moses testified to Jesus. David and Samuel and the prophets testified to Jesus. And now the connection to Abraham is given in verse 25. Notice it says, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God made a covenant with Abraham. He made it all the way back in Genesis. That covenant consisted of three parts. There were personal benefits to Abraham. He was promised that his name would be made great. There were national benefits promised to Israel. Out of Abraham would come a great nation. That's the nation of Israel. But thirdly, and this is what Peter picks up on here, there were universal benefits from the Abrahamic covenant. This very early covenant in Scripture, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis 15, and then the sign of the covenant in Genesis 17. In Genesis 12, 3, He was promised in you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. They were all going their own way at that time. This is the time after the Tower of the Babel and all the nations were spreading throughout the globe and they were all turning away from God. They were all refusing to worship the true God and they were developing their their idols and their temples. This was all going on. So God picks Abram and he says, I'm going to bless all these rebellious nations through you. There's got a spillover blessing to all of the other families. What a loving God we have. That while they're being disobedient, while they're turning to idolatry, He still promises every family, every tongue, every nation is going to be blessed, but it's going to all flow through Abraham. And He's saying Jesus now is fulfilling that. Jesus is that greater seed of Abraham. Jesus is the one that's bringing blessing, blessing to the Gentiles, to all of the nations. God set that plan up. Those other nations will not be blessed through their own. That, by the way, is why God doesn't have to choose any of the other nations. They all went their own way. Even Israel would have gone their own way, but he he made a covenant with them, and he called them, and he chose them. And he said, I'm going to do this work. I'm in charge, and and I'm going to bless all of the families of the world through this one nation. And so the Savior is born Jewish, and he's born King of the Jews, and he offers his life, and he sheds his blood, and he rises from the dead to conquer death. And now all the nations have the opportunity to hear the message of the King of the Jews crucified and risen again, and they're offered eternal life, and they're offered entrance into the kingdom. But Peter's not preaching to the Gentiles here. He's preaching to the Jews. And so look how he concludes in verse 26. For you, who's he speaking to? The Jews. For you, that's even emphatic in the Greek sentence. For you, first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. All of this was meant for the Jews first. Romans 1.16, you know it, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For who? The Jew first, right? And also to the Greek, the Gentiles. It was meant for the Jews, beloved. But in that lifetime, they did not turn from their wicked ways. And so Jerusalem was destroyed 40 years later, about 40 years after the sermon. Gave them more time. That generation and many generations since forfeited their rights to the covenant blessings and to the kingdom of God. 
But that nation remains on God's radar because when men are faithless, God remains what? Faithful. That's just who he is. It's just as he said to Moses. It's just as Samuel labored. It's just as was promised to Abraham. And we thank God that he is faithful to his word. We don't need to change the prophecies so we can figure out how maybe they're supposed to be fulfilled. What he said, he's going to do. He didn't make it hard to understand. We just need to believe him. In due time, it'll all come about. And Jew and Gentile who are one in the church now will be one in the kingdom then as well. Thank God for his faithfulness. Thank God for his loyalty to his own. Thank God that when he shed his blood on Calvary, he will never forget you. How silly is this doctrine that we can lose our salvation? Can God run out of love? Were you the one that saved yourself so that now you can lose the salvation that you created for yourself? If God delivered you, is he gonna throw you back in? He saved you, you're in his hands, he loves you, he's faithful to you. If he's faithful to such an obstinate nation as Israel, well, I don't want to encourage you to be obstinate, but if you are, you return quickly and don't listen to the devil's lies. God loves you with a faithful and loyal love. That's what our celebration at this table reminds us of every single time that we're around that table. He, he shed his blood for us. If he loved us when we were rebellious, how's he gonna stop loving us now? He's so good, he's so precious. Every word of his mouth is true. He's in control of everything. and He's bringing it all about. Praise be to his name. Father, may you be glorified and just remind us of our fellowship with you as we come around your table, your table, Lord, for you are to be honored at this table. Amen.